Welcome to the Play Notes podcast, where we give you the inside scoop on the main stage productions at Portland Stage. I'm Nick Hone. And I'm Maura O'Sullivan. And we're so excited to explore the world of Sweet Goats and Blueberry Senoritas, the brand new play from Richard Blanco and Vanessa Garcia, which is having its world premiere here at Portland Stage. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into some of the articles from this edition of Play Notes from a history of the Cuban Revolution to New Age spiritualism. So, get ready. Get ready for it. One of the biggest themes in Sweet Goats and the Blueberry Senoritas, the idea of found family. It's a trope that we see all the time. It's also called a chosen family. And Mm. it's really whenever characters find a community that can be the same supportive network as a blood family without the blood. Gotcha. Okay. So tell me about, tell me about found family. So in this play, we see Bea, who has moved to Maine. She doesn't know anyone there. She's on her own in a completely different area than she grew up in from Miami. And she's forced to find a little niche community. And she does this with her neighbors. We see her interact with Blake, who's also a fellow transplant from Kentucky. We see her with Maynard, a local woodworker. Her neighbor, Georgette, who is her shoulder to lean on. And they form their own little circle. And they're there for each other when times are hard. And it's something that I think is both heartwarming for audiences, but also very relatable. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Especially since found family is a trope that people see and have known in books and media for so long. Yeah, I honestly, when I think of found family, I go straight to every sitcom I've ever loved, Mm -hmm. where you're looking at like one group of friends who, you know, maybe they live together on New Girl or they work together like on Parks and Rec. They might be sort of the Island of Misfit Toys. They might be sort of a wild collection of characters, but for... Whatever reason, they've found, like, common ground, and they're there for each other, episode through episode, and you, like, see this family grow over the course of seasons of shows. I think that's where my brain immediately goes. I always want that in my life, doesn't everyone? Yeah. I think that everyone craves that level of support, especially with a found family. Sometimes the necessity for a found family comes out of the fact that your blood family is going through a tough time or does no longer accepts you or has actively rejected you as a person. And I think everyone does really want to find that level of support, especially for some who the necessity for a found family comes out of the fact that their blood family has rejected them in some way, rejected their identity or the way that they are living their lives. And so they need that support. They no longer have it. And they find people in their lives who can give that to them. And I find that beautiful. Yeah, we often see this in real life as well as reflected in the media in the queer community. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of people coming together to be that support system for each other when maybe they're not accepted by their family. And we see that in, in fiction. We see it in shows like Glee or Pose. But I'm also, as I've said before on this, a huge Drag Race fan. Yeah. And... Those contestants, they're they're up against each other, but they still, throughout the competition, call each other sisters. Mm-hmm. And even after someone is crowned a winner, they still keep that that 
close community and that close connection. And I think that's really incredible and something that we could all benefit from. Yeah. And, you know, as a baseline, as humans, we all just want to feel like we belong somewhere. Yeah. And that's why this trope is so common and yet feels unique every time because it's always a different set of circumstances that has brought these people together for whatever reason. Mm. And it's, it's really honestly very universal and it's nice to see it reflected in this play, mm-hmm. which really delves into what makes you from somewhere, what yeah. makes a home, you know, with Bea's uncle and mother wondering why she stays in Maine yeah. when all of her blood relatives are down in Florida. They can't understand until her uncle comes and sees the, her life here. They don't understand that that there is a family here and there is a home that she has built. And Sweet Goats does a really interesting job of riding that line between the connection between blood family and found family. Because as you said, and as anyone who is listening that has seen the show will know, Bea's uncle comes to Maine and meets her found family and the crux of the play is about Bea's mother and the sort of argument between respecting your parents and the love that the blood family gives while also acknowledging the love that a found family can give is just as supportive, is just as real, and that it's not a betrayal if you bring strangers, as someone might see them, into your family. They are family. They are just not related by blood. Yeah, and love is hard, and family can love be difficult. Hard. It's hard. Love is hard. I don't know if anyone knows that, but, you know, there's some there's some trials and tribulations, okay? Stuff happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and, and as anyone knows, you don't always get along with the people that you were born into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but having the agency to make a life for yourself that works for you and gives you everything you need, that's also so important and so cool to see on stage. Yeah. And I think that seeing a representation of found family on stage like this is really empowering for someone who might be going through that same struggle, either extricating themselves from their family or away from members of their family and building that level of community. There can be a level of shame or desire to return to what is familiar, the the people that you grew up with. But this play does a really good job of saying, like, it can be okay to say no and to find love for yourself in a way that makes sense for you. Yeah, I think it's a really beautiful manifestation of making a home and finding a home and finding the people that you want to fill your home with. Yeah. Something that Sweet Goats spends some time describing and going into detail about is the reasons that Bea's family left Cuba, that Bea's mom and uncle were taken from Cuba during Operation Pedro Pan or Operation Peter Pan during the sort of aftermath of the Cuban Revolution and the sort of effect that Cuba becoming a communist nation in the Western Hemisphere had on the people from the island, people living on the island, people living in the United States that were Cubans at that time. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to do a a little bit of a brief history of the Cuban Revolution, just for everyone's edification. Please do. It is so important. And it's really the, the backdrop that informs this entire story. Yeah. So hit it. So the Cuban Revolution was a political and military movement from 1953 to 1959 to overthrow the Cuban government led by Fulgencio Batista, 
Batista, a former military officer, had been elected president of Cuba and served from 1940 to 1944. Prior to being president, he controlled the nation behind the scenes as the self-appointed chief of the military. By using the threat of military action, Batista was able to force any president of Cuba that he disliked to resign, and then he would replace them with his preferred candidate. When Batista's hand-picked successor lost to Dr. Ramon Grau San Martin in the 1944 election, Batista fled the country and worked to disenfranchise the incoming Grau administration. In 1952, Batista ran again the Cuban presidency. When it became clear he was not going to win, he staged a coup with military backing and seized power three months prior to the election. At the time, the United States backed Batista's coup and profited. But soon, Cubans and politicians of other countries became wary. Then, Senator John F. Kennedy remarked on how the U.S., quote, publicly praised Batista, hailed him as a staunch ally and a good friend, at a time when Batista was murdering thousands, destroying the last vestiges of freedom, and stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from the Cuban people, and we failed to press for free elections, end quote. The we in that being the United States, who were operating as Batista's backers. Okay, got it. I'm with ya. <laughs> I'm still with it. <laughs> it was in this environment that an international spotlight was thrown onto Cuba and the seeds of revolution were sown. So historians generally cite July 26th, 1953 as the start of the Cuban Revolution. A young Fidel Castro led an attack on the Santiago de Cuba army barracks in an attempt to overthrow Batista. Castro, who was 27 years old at the time, had been a rising candidate for Congress in the 1952 election that Batista had halted. 27 and congressional nominee and revolution leader? 30 under 30, am I right? Am I right, Forbes? Get in on this guy. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? <laughs> I got four years to go. Then the revolution's coming. TikTok baby. <laughs> Anyways, this attack was meant to rally the people to reject the current government, with Castro wanting a new government to instate open elections and progressive social programs to help the impoverished. However, during the attack, Castro and his core group were captured and sentenced to 15 years in prison. During his public trial, Castro denounced the government's corruption, achieving national recognition and gaining a reputation as a hero among lower-class Cubans. In May of 1955, the government released many political prisoners after facing international pressures, including Castro, who fled to Mexico and began organizing the revolutionary organization called the 26th of July Movement, named after the inciting Santiago de Cuba attack. Other key revolutionaries affiliated with Castro included, stop me if you know these ones, Che Guevara and Camilo Cienfuegos, who worked together to strategize in Mexico before they all returned to Cuba the next year. Okay, we've got a plot twist. We've got a plot building. When the 26th of July movement landed on Cuba, they initiated a sort of urban and guerrilla warfare-style campaign to start liberating small towns and villages from Batista's larger army that, in a face-to-face -face conflict, would scatter the revolutionaries. In late December of 1958, Castro laid siege and captured the city of Santa Clara, forcing Batista to flee the country. After the 26th of July movement were able to capture valuable military weapons and force the remaining government to hand leadership over to them, but on January 1st, 1959, the Cuban Revolution had ended with Castro taking over the government in Havana. Once in power, though, it seemed clear that he was going to postpone elections indefinitely. 
and that Castro would have complete authority. Cuba became the first communist state in the Western Hemisphere backed by the USSR. It also became a one-party state where dissenters were jailed and the free press was banned. Throughout the 60s, these regressive policies began an exile of Cuban migrants to the United States, specifically to southern Florida, to try and find a better life. Under the now President Kennedy, the United States imposed a trade embargo in 1962, which deeply impacted the economic health of Cuba, and then the United States established what was called the Cuban Adjustment Act of 1966, which granted lawful permanent residency to any Cuban citizen who had settled in the United States for at least a year prior. Now, to make a very long, very complicated story short, the Cuban Revolution is complicated, especially for Cuban Americans. Castro and his revolutionaries were deeply inspirational to other movements throughout Latin America, causing young people to think critically and rise up against corrupt governments. However, Cuba became an area of international focus during the Cold War between the United States and the USSR, leading to strained historical moments like the Cuban Missile Crisis, in which the USSR deployed nuclear missiles to Cuba on an almost-started nuclear war. The United States and Cuba have maintained a tense relationship, with a slowly mending through cultural exchanges and a loosened trade embargo, but the Cuban Americans who left as exiles during the waves of migration from the 60s to the 80s still share deep pride for their Cuban heritage and remain passionately politically engaged with both countries. Quote, An identity as exiles has colored all aspects of the life of Cubans in the United States, observed Guillermo Grenier, a Cuban professor of sociology at Florida International University. The quote continues, It has shaped the social life of the Cuban-American community and reinforced a sense of exceptionalism, and it has determined the nature of their participation in the political life of their new country. Okay, everyone give a round of applause to Nick Holm. <laughs> He's going to go chug a bottle of water. If you'll excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm so grateful for that explanation because I do think, even though it's such recent history, it's before, you know, our generation mm -hmm. was around. And it's something that is touched on, but this play gave me a reason to go into all that detail. Mm -hmm. And I actually learned a lot more about this period of time mm -hmm. than I ever knew before. And that's kind of why I love theater is it gives these really specific spotlights on different stories that give you an excuse to like broaden your horizons and research more and be a big nerd about it. So without knowing all of that, it's still a great play. But I do think that understanding the roots of it all and understanding where Bea's mom and uncle came from as children fleeing Cuba really informs how they operate in America mm -hmm. and how they raise a child in America as well. Yeah, the way that Americans often learn about Cuba is through the lens of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Cuba kind of pops up on our geopolitical radar as we move through history, as all of a sudden, in the mid-1960s, being a communist nation in the Western Hemisphere, and all of a sudden they have nuclear weapons. Yes. And then as soon as the Cuban Missile Crisis is over, they kind of fade away into obscurity again. But what makes the way that the characters in, in Suikos, when they talk about Cuba, what makes it so interesting for me is that all this complexity is known to them, is intimately known to them. Because for some of these characters, they were there on the island when these events were happening. Maybe not exactly the 
the crisis in and of itself, but the transition from the military dictatorship of Batista into revolution, into Fidel Castro ruling as an as a communist autocrat, provides layers of complexity that I don't think American viewers often have when they think about Cuba. Well, and it's interesting because in the rest of America's brain, it did fade into quote-unquote obscurity mm-hmm. because it wasn't front of mind after that, after the missile crisis. Yeah. But for the people there, very much, you know, still a dire situation. Yeah. And it's just so important to get out of our own little tiny bubble and our mm-hmm. own little lens and realize, like, the world is still happening all yeah. the time. Yeah. <laughs> And the, the quote from Professor Grenier really adds a, another layer of, of deep, interesting color to Cuban-Americans' relationship with their cultural heritage, that for some of them, the island of Cuba hurt them in a deep personal way. But to be Cuban still gives them so much joy and so much sort of social and cultural cachet that they can lean on and explore and love and deepen their connection to while also having to rectify that with its place in the world currently and their distance from it, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. The theme for today is things are hard. (laughs) It's also interesting you mentioned towards the beginning Operation Pedro Pan, Mm -hmm. which is a huge part of this play in that that is the program that got Bea's mother and uncle to Miami. So Operation Peter Pan was a clandestine exodus of over 14,000 unaccompanied Cuban minors, ages 6 to 18, to the United States from 1960 to 1962. And they were sent after their parents feared that Fidel Castro and the Communist Party were planning to terminate parental rights and place minors in communist indoctrination centers. So this program consisted of two main components, the mass evacuation of Cuban children via airplane to the U.S., Miami was the number one hub, and the program set up to care for them once they arrived, which were led by the Catholic Welfare Bureau. The operation was the largest exodus of minor refugees in the Western Hemisphere at the time. Mm. And it operated covertly out of fear that it would be viewed as an anti-Castro political enterprise. So this is how Bea's mother and uncle ended up in Miami. They were put on a plane without their family, no parents. Their older brother was too old to come with them. Yeah. They were sent to Miami for a better life and grew up in the foster system. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, really sets up some of the complicated feelings of home is Cuba. My parents are in Cuba, but I am here. Mm-hmm. And how do I build a home here? And then you're raising the next generation in America without them ever having gone to Cuba and they, and they can't. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think that that is so hard and so hard to even imagine for myself how, how hard that would be to send your kid overseas by themselves and hope for the best because it's the best thing for them and then to grow up in that. It's a really incredible place to start a playroom, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. And the lasting effects of 
Operation Peter Pan on the characters is seen, is felt in the in the show. There are moments where character growth is based fully on the fact that Tio Eme and Marilyn grew up in the United States for the most part without their parents. They talk about how what it was like to see their parents again when they were able to get out of Cuba and they had grown up without them. And they were each other's only support system. Yeah. You know, and so that... That sibling bond is so strong. And the complicated relationship that would give to having your own child that we experience with Marilyn discussing what it was like to hold Bea in the hospital and to think about her own parents and to think about how Bea is going to think about her. It really built a lot of deep, complicated relationships just based on the history of the migratory patterns out of Cuba into the United States. Yes, and when we were thinking about these migratory patterns, In thinking about Maine and the many different communities that make up the the state and also the Portland area, I wanted to look into what are sort of the migratory patterns that we have here. Maine is still statistically, sorry to say, the oldest and whitest state, according to the U.S. Census. In 2014, it was 95% Caucasian. But the good thing is that the immigrant population has been steadily increasing. The foreign-born population grew by 19.6% between 2000 and 2011. Wow. Which is great. As of 2018, immigrants rose to 4% of the population here in Maine, with the top countries of origin for new Maine residents being Canada, the Philippines, Germany, India, and Korea. Wow. And that same year... Reports show that 24,885 immigrants were naturalized, which is 52%, and 12,400 immigrants were eligible to become naturalized. That's fantastic. So that's like a bunch of numbers, but what does it mean? What does it mean, Maura? Tell me. So it means as more and more foreign-born people have become Mainers, the state has seen a rise in racial diversity, going from 95% Caucasian in 2014 to 90% in 2020, with the Portland area of Cumberland County at 87%. Nice. Now, of course... Maine's white population is still very high, especially when compared to the national average, which is 61%. Wow, yeah. But the increasingly more diverse population can be tied to many families like Bea's and Sweet Goats, who have found new homes and communities in New England, which we love. Yeah, New England is a great place, and we're happy that more people are realizing and coming and hanging out and and turning New England into a place where everyone is welcome. Yes, exactly. And, you know, immigration is such a hot-button issue, and it is just constantly being debated and talked to death, but when it comes down to it, it is a good thing for the United States. Yeah. And there are numbers to back it up. Yeah. Not only is it how most of the population ended up in this country in the first place, mm-hmm. if you're not of Native American heritage, yeah. then you also come from a line of immigrants. Surprise! <laughs> we love to remember that. Yeah. And immigrant communities are so beneficial. In Maine, they've contributed hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. As consumers, they add over a billion dollars to Maine's economy. Mm-hmm. As entrepreneurs, like small business owners like Bea and Tio M.A., They generate millions. In 2014, immigrant-owned businesses generated $60.8 million in business income and employed 
over 14,000 people in the state. Economists across the nation and throughout history have all come to the same conclusion, which is immigration is awesome and it helps economies across the board. It's crazy that we have to say it yeah. in such a way, but yeah. I do really think it's it should be underlined. And, and it's encouraging to hear that Maine is such a welcoming place. Um, but it's also important for people in Maine to remember that because there are groups in the United States that will try and convince you otherwise, immigration is always going to help your community, going to help your city, going to help your state. It's going to help you, help your bank account, always 100% of the time, no matter what anyone else tries to convince <laughs> you of. I promise. And there are so many things that can't be counted in statistics that are so beneficial. I mean, we have such an exceptional restaurant and dining scene in Portland yeah. that is full of so many different cultures and different delicious things that you can try yeah. from all over, which yeah. is amazing. We have a thriving city life. We have a vibrant art scene. All of that is made even more vibrant. Yeah. And I did want to point out... That if you're thinking about how you can get involved in your community and help some of the newest members of our city, there's a few places to start. First of all, I recommend you seeking out immigrant-owned businesses and donating to nonprofits helping to accommodate new arrivals. Portland is one of the fastest-growing locations for asylum seekers, most recently many from Africa. Mm -hmm. So volunteering for and donating to the city's initiatives to help the inpouring of refugees is a great way to get involved. And if you want to learn more about getting involved with that, you can check out the City of Portland's website, portlandmaine.gov, or contact the city manager's office for information on how to make a donation toward providing housing assistance and basic human necessities to asylum seekers in the area. What better way to build community than to get to know your neighbors? Well said, Nick. Thanks. Want to be part of a fully staged Shakespeare play with your friends? Teens grades 7 through 12 are invited to join Portland Stage's Teen Shakespeare Company this spring and be part of an outdoor production of Shakespeare's comedy Twelfth Night at the Main Audubon. All involved will take on a variety of roles including acting, set design, costume design, marketing, and more. Visit our website at portlandstage.org education for more information and to register. Speaking of delicious multicultural ideas of food, Maura, do you want to hear about Cuban cuisine and desserts? God, do I. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> so beyond just being nourishment, food often is seen as a show of love or celebration, a gift to be given, a way of bringing people together. Oh, to break bread. To break bread. Everything from a religious or cultural tradition, but to casual conversation around a kitchen table, it is always reflective of the region and time that it was developed, and a culture's cuisine can teach us a lot about its history, traditions, values, and more. It is my favorite thing to do when I travel anywhere new. Mm -hmm. I learn the most by eating my way through that country. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the greatest ways to experience a new place is to explore with the people who make their lives there what they eat. And Cuban food is no different. Cuban food is reflective of 
the cultural and political and economic history that has happened on the island. It is a rich blend of Caribbean, Spanish, African cultures with nods to French and Arabic and Chinese and Portuguese cuisines. Dishes favor complex flavor profiles and versatile spices that combine and borrow from all of these countries. All of the sort of parent cuisines of Cuba get a nod in most dishes. Amazing. Furthermore, Cuban cuisine was largely shaped by Cuba's fluctuating access to money and resources. In 1959, when Fidel Castro came to power, as we discussed, the country saw subsequent economic instability. Cubans came to rely on cheap and accessible food that they could make special with technique and sparing uses of seasonings. As international relations suffered over the island's history, more and more dishes were adapted to heavily use ingredients and products that were native to Cuba, or could be grown there following the country's agricultural boom. As such, we see a lot of the same ingredients appear in Cuban recipes, repurposed and inventively used to create a myriad of dishes. Ooh, tell me more. I will. One recipe that's referenced in Sweet Goats is Bea's family's frijoles recipe created by Nitza Viapol, who played a huge part in shaping traditional Cuban food following Castro's rise to power. She was Cuba's first popular televised cooking show host in 1948. She taught her audiences how to make classic Cuban recipes like picadillo, vaca frita. Now you're just making me hungry. I know. Yeah, same. It's the... Little peek behind the curtain. It's the end of our day, and I am <laughs> starving. This is dinner time, and you really chose a good article to, to read. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. It's torturous. Her recipes and approaches changed the course of her nearly 50-year tenure in response to the changing national landscape. She eliminated ingredients from her cookbooks that had been sourced from America before the Cuban-American embargo, and she made creative use of pieces of scrap food and unpopular cuts of meat that traditionally would have been thrown out before the embargo. Although it was considered a peasant dish, Viapol announced congri, rice and beans, to be, quote, a cornerstone of Cuban culture. She continuously adapted classic recipes to fit the needs and resources of a typical Cuban household. And I find that to be an issue so often when I'm looking at cookbooks or watching cooking shows is that I don't have that stuff. Where am I going to find green chartreuse? <laughs> I can't find that anywhere. Of course I'm not going to make that recipe anymore. I'm going to close the book. Well, and I love that... I, well, I grew up with a chef as a dad. Oh, really? Yes, and he's all about eating local, eating what what is native to wherever you are. Mm -hmm. I think it's so cool to learn about what was happening in the history via what was in their cookbooks. Yeah. It had to adapt to what did they have, what could they grow, what could they get, and what a cool legacy to have as a chef. Yeah. To like lead the charge on this is this is what we've got, let's make it delicious. To single-handedly create a new identity for Cuban food. Yeah, a whole a whole new cuisine, which is really awesome. Really awesome. And sounds really good. So good. <laughs> this period of Cuban history also impacted the country's traditional baked goods. Cuban bread was traditionally a short round loaf of soft leavened bread. And Cuba's government put a ration on many staple food and ingredients, flour included. In an effort to adapt, Cuban bakers made their bread into longer, flatter loaves that were easier to cut into small pieces for rationing. Even as economic and trade concerns improved, 
The common and well-known bread shape never changed, creating the flaky, crusted, and salt-textured bread found in Cuban bakeries today. And the traditional Cuban style of baking is very important to the characters in the play, as two of them are bakers. Tio Eme, who is from Cuba, and Bea, who was raised by Tio Eme and Marilyn, and their father, who was also a baker. They have a traditional lineage of being bakers. And so the discussion of baked goods in the play is extremely important. Yeah, there's something so deeply bonding about the traditions of what your family makes Mm -hmm. and passing those recipes down. And we see in this play, taking those recipes and then making them your own Mm -hmm. and adding your own twist to it. And it's so cool to hear where some of those influences for those initial recipes came from. Yeah. And then now to see in 2023 how Bay is going to put her little remix on them. Yeah. And if you come see the show, after the, as you're leaving the theater, you might be handed a little recipe or two that you can make yourself and try a little Cuban baking for yourself at home. Yeah, no one's going to say no to a little bakery treat. Yeah, everyone loves a little bakery treat. Bring them to your neighbors. That's Bring how you get your neighbors. found family. Yeah, find your found family, get to know your neighbors, bake. Butter them up. Do it. Hey, Nick. Yeah. What are your big three? Oh, God. I can't out myself on the podcast. Okay, what's your sun sign? I'm a Libra. Ooh, okay, very balanced. Yeah. I don't want you to judge me. I am a Scorpio. Scorpio moon for me. Okay. That's so what I... I didn't want to say. <laughs> it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take one for the team and admit it. <laughs> but I do have a Libra rising. Wow. So if this means anything to you, you may or may not be a millennial or a Gen Zer, or maybe you're just someone who's super into astrology. Mm-hmm. Now, this might seem like it's coming out of left field, but this is something that is taking over in a very new way. It's been around for so long, and yet people are discussing astrology and new age spiritualism practices more and more. In Sweet Goats, we see Bea's neighbor, Georgette, experimenting with some of these new ways of connecting with the universe and with the earth and with herself. We see her try to use crystals. We see her ask to get a reading from Bea. And even though she has this deep need for seeking identity and guidance, she doesn't know how to go about it yet. So she's trying out a whole lot of different things. But she's trying out a lot of new things that aren't something she grew up with Mm -hmm. and aren't necessarily from her own cultural traditions. So in thinking about that, I realized that I see a lot on social media. I'm sure you do too, Nick. Oh, certainly. A lot of influencers taking on certain practices that come from the roots of many different cultures and many cultures of color. Yeah. So why was this a mainstream resurgence? Why are we looking to alternate forms of spiritualism? And I think a lot of it has to do with our loss of traditional religion and our deep need to find meaning, especially coming out of something like a pandemic. Just to give a little, I love a statistic, as you can tell. Bring it. Hit me with the stats. (laughs) According to a Pew Research Center survey in December of 2021, 29% of adults in this country said they have no religious affiliation, which is an increase of 6% since 2016. Wow. 
Younger generations have questioned some of the rationale and the stricter beliefs of traditional religions, but the search for answers still stands. And coming out of the trauma of the pandemic and experiencing the evangelical alt-right's weaponizing of Christianity and politics, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are turning to alternative religions and mystical practices for guidance. There's a real focus on individualism and connection to nature and a freeform no rules kind of structure and that's becoming this new go-to lifestyle yeah and according to another pew survey in 2018 20 percent of americans said they believe in astrology and the number of americans who identify as wiccan has surged from 8,000 in 1990 to more than a million practitioners today yeah bring it back more witches (laughs) Obviously, with anything popular, you're going to see it online. Yeah. There's a huge, growing TikTok presence on how to be a witch, which is of Instagram. There's millions of posts about how to pray to spirits before homemade altars or, you know, influencers showing off their crystal jewelry. And that has now spread into corporate America. Nick, have you seen a lot of stuff at Target with, like, you know, tarot card designs and Mm -hmm. astrology symbols on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Basically, every apartment or dorm room decoration section in every store I've been in for the past five years has a large wall hanging with a tarot card (laughs) printed on it. Yes. And so this has now become sort of a cash grab. Yeah. And it's completely diluted the roots of all of these practices. Yeah. And they, the roots of many of the spiritual practices are deeply embedded in non-white cultures. Mm-hmm. With Georgette in Sweet Goats, we see her having great intentions, wanting to get a reading from her friend with her caracoles, which are charged cowrie shells. But that comes from... West African as well as Afro-diasporic religions and can be found in Latin America and it plays an important role in religions like Santeria and Georgette doesn't know that. Not at all. (laughs) And without understanding how it works, she assumes that like any seashells will work Mm -hmm. and she doesn't know what she's getting into. It's a great example of this yearning for spiritual guidance while lacking a full knowledge of the background. Yeah. I wanted to know how people can explore these alternative religions and healing rituals without completely whitewashing them. Yeah. And it's a very fine line between appreciation and appropriation. I think the key is education and acknowledgement, Mm -hmm. arming yourself with as much information as you can in order to honor it and respect it. Um, Learning about the history of witchcraft, understanding the root of the word witch, which was a term that was brought to North and South America by European colonizers to demonize the spiritual practices of indigenous people and survivors of the transatlantic slave trade. Great first step. Yeah. In avoiding perpetuating damage. Mm -hmm. Other ways to mindfully explore these types of belief systems is to be aware of where you shop. Make sure you're choosing small businesses that benefit the communities that created the practices instead of huge corporations. Just look into, you know, sell you a water bottle with a Scorpio sign on it. Yeah. And there's also some ethical concerns. Have you heard about what is happening in crystals? No, tell me. (laughs) So there's humanitarian issues. There's such a high demand for crystals 
which are believed to have unique healing properties, you know, certain ones help with certain things, it's led to dangerous mining conditions and harmful harvesting practices just to get them. 90% of the world's jade, which is a stone that's used to bring tranquility to your life, comes from Myanmar and is one of their biggest resources. The perilous mining conditions have led to jade being called the new blood diamond. Oh, God. Yes. Also, the indigenous practice of smudging or burning white sage to cleanse a space of negative energy. We see this all the time. I even see this on, you know, the Real Housewives doing it in their mansions. Yeah. It's become such a popular practice that white sage has now been over-harvested and could be in danger of extinction. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's important to understand the gravity of what you're doing and realize that there are consequences and ripple effects and you don't want to to be a contributing factor to some of these concerns. Yeah, these things are people's medicine, people's religion, and to use them as a fad or something that you think is good but you're not really sure is dangerous and harmful to communities that still really value things like this that are, are part of their cultural heritage. So as you said, Maura, I feel like education, 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 find out what it is you're doing before you do it, not after. And if you can, ask someone who knows more than you if you should be doing this thing, because maybe you shouldn't be. Before you jump on the next TikTok trend, make sure you do your research. Do your research. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Play Notes. As always, you can find a print version of the articles you've heard here on our website, portlandstage.org slash playnotes. Tickets for Sweet Goats and Blueberry Senoritas are on sale now, so contact our box office by calling 207-774-0465 or buy them directly through our website. The show runs from January 25th to February 12th in person and will also be available to stream online from February 8th to the 26th. Ooh, I love an online option. Isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> and if you liked this podcast, please subscribe to the show on whichever app you use and tell your friends all about it. Thanks for hanging out with us and join us next time as we get into our next show this season. August Wilson's How I Learned What I Learned. This episode is brought to you by Audrey Erickson, Rachel Rapella, Nick Hone, and Maura O'Sullivan. 